1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The State of Love and Trust. It's a Pearl Jam podcast, and I'm one of your two hosts, Jason Carapace, and alongside me, as always, is...
2: Paul Gillieri.
1: Paul, it's a lovely, hot week here in Southern California, and uh, we figured, you know, as the rehearsals are starting to heat up, with the weather, ahead of this Pearl Jam tour, we should probably dial up another really interesting guest for the show, right?
2: Absolutely. Figure hot days... Require hot takes.
1: <laughs> Before we get to our guest, uh, which I think if you if you dove in, dived, I don't know what the right word is, down the rabbit hole of Pearl Jam lore and history, and the folks behind the scenes who make the band do what they do and hum, then you'll know the person we're about to talk, uh, introduce But before we do that, uh, I just want to thank everybody who has fed the algorithm. You got to do that. You got to rate, review, and subscribe. And anyone who is a patron, um, a couple more joined last week. They are helping us choose the newest artwork. We appreciate you guys for helping us out with that. Um, And anyone who's bought a shirt, fantastic. We love that. And thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's all the housework we're going to take care of here. We want to get right into it, Paul.
2: Yeah, we sure do.
1: Um, well, without further ado, um, I'm simply going to say the words, Jimmy Schoff Jr. And, uh, here he is, Jimmy, how, how's it going? Doing great. Kicking back on the coast of North Carolina since 2018. So you're kicking it back. You're, you're enjoying yourself. You're enjoying your second life, your second career now in North Carolina. By the way, for anybody who doesn't know, just based off your name, Jimmy Schoff Jr., Tell the fine people what you did for a number of years with the with the band Pearl Jam.
0: I was uh, the drum tech for Mr. David James Aberzies.
1: I mean, many people know the story, but we'll really cliff notes version of this thing as far as how Dave Aberzese joined the band. So Dave Crusin leaves, he has some personal issues. They bring in Matt Chamberlain, who's there temporarily just a few weeks. And then Matt's like, I'm gonna go ahead and play an SNL, but I know a guy. I know a guy in Texas that crushes the skins. Call him. So Dave Abrazees joins the band. You you hook up with the guys when? When do you become Dave's tech?
0: Lollapalooza 1992. I was out with Corrosion Conformity opening for Testament and Iron Maiden. Ooh. And I got a show. message. And I got a message from the production office. We didn't have mobile phones, right? So I'd, you had emergency numbers and a paper itinerary. So. <laughs> Somebody had called and it was Eric Johnson if you know Eric Johnson this yep. was a tour manager, right he had called the production office for Iron Maiden, which the opening act, especially in those days and some from Iron Maiden, it's an old sixty to 70 year old production manager, and those you know you just don't interrupt those guys with you know, mediocre tasks of what you want as an opening band or whatever. So I, I get a a guy come up and say, Hey, there's a phone call for you in the production office, which is Iron Maiden's production office. And I'm like, "Uh, Oh God, my mom's dead. My dad's dead. Somebody Mm -hmm. died. It's, you know, who calls me in Iron Maiden's production office? And it was Eric Johnson. (laughs) And, uh, by the time I got there, he, he just left a message for me to call him back. So I called him back and he goes, Hey man, uh, I know you're out with, uh, coc but uh, i was talking to scully and again scully was the first roadie for pearl jam
3: mm-hmm. and
0: then i think they added george webb yep and so dave still didn't have a drum tech and they wanted a drum tech for lollapalooza and he said hey it's it's a red eye flight but you know would you consider doing the red eye flight you know after your last show with iron maiden and coc and coming out here and going right to uh, lollapalooza and i went sure you know because i knew scully and i knew him and then you know it was i don't know what more of my you know you just take it's subcontractor work so as long as the band's touring you make money but to have two two tours line up back to back i would have liked a day off but you know i did the red eye and went out there and uh we did a sound check and did a show if i recall it was a wasn't the best organized of things back in that day um they gave me They FedExed a ticket uh, and we had, you know, airline tickets weren't, you know, you couldn't do it online. Yeah, they were paper tickets. There was no online, Jimmy. Yep. (laughs) uh, I got a a ticket to San Francisco. No address for the venue, no address for a hotel, no address, just a ticket to San Francisco. (laughs) And so I walked off the plane and walked outside and there were some kids outside that were, you know, what was I, I was probably, I was 23 or four. I was young. I mean, you know, it was 19, what, 24 at the time, I think. Right. And, uh, there were some, you know, teenagers or whatever in the smoking area. So I went over there. And I said, you guys going to Lawless Who's by chance today? And they were like, yeah. And they told me the address and I jumped in a cab and went to the address and went to the production area. And Eric came out and met me and gave me some passes. And, up on stage, I went, and Scully had the drums out of their cases, I think, and was partially setting up. And Dave was there, and I met Dave, and I had met him before. I didn't realize he had mentioned that, but I had met him. He, he had came out to see a, evidently, he had came out to see a, an Iron Maiden see show and met me, but I don't recall that. That you know, I just I, well, I was working, so I you know, yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> and uh, so that and that and we hit the ground running. So my first show was in San Francisco on Malapalooza.
2: What a show, Jimmy! What, what are some of some standout early memories from that period of time that really jump out at you?
0: Um, they, well, <laughs> getting a ticket with no address or phone number <laughs> was a shock. <laughs> Allison Chains had turned me on to the uh, the demo tape before it came out. Ten. Mm-hmm. Um, And I would still, you know, friends of those guys somewhat. And um, just the, uh, I I didn't know the, you know, there wasn't videos out. I mean, I didn't know that Vetter would climb up the, whatever he could climb up every night, right? 20 to 60 feet in the air and swing from whatever. And then the the destruction on stage stuff, I didn't know they, you know, Mike traditionally broke a guitar or tipped over an amp or stone wood here and there. You know, that vetter would swing his mic at the kit or jump up on the kick drum and make you nervous because if something breaks, guess who's got to fix it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So you know, um, I, that was kind of a a shock to me that that was so consistent. Of that happening. <laughs>
1: so you've got. Um, I read somewhere that uh, Dave talked about um, he had some sort of injury, and I guess he picked up some tips from Max Weinberg. And, but then, then he mentioned that you would, uh, hook him up with some Ben Gay. Is that, is that real?
0: Well, he has carpal tunnel. Okay. Carpal um, tunnel. There you go. Yeah. So heat, extreme heat and extreme cold, depending on what's, what's going on, um, is how you, you try to relieve the pain and numbness. I think numbness is one of the big things, you know, if you can't feel sure. a lot of the fancy stick work, right. The, you know, just like drum rolls and all that, that's your hands. And you're feeling the, the bounce off the uh, um, the drum heads, right? The bounce, you know. That's how you make a drum roll, and be able to feel it. And I believe that was the the large problem is losing feeling, and then, of course, you get pain too. I mean, you know, he went through some, some painful shows toward the end. That was more vitology. La blues he, he nailed. He was fine until. Yeah, I, I, the Vitality stuff, I be, if I recall correctly, I mean, he, he would know more about when things. I mean, it was I don't a lot of and I think we got through Versus. I'm pretty sure we got through Versus without most of it showing up. It's all kind of a blur, but Versus was, I, I was lucky enough to be in the studio when they recorded Versus. I mean, I was actually there when they laid down the, the tracks. For most of that stuff, I was only there for a. Well, see, drums were done in a month, so it was me and George Webb were the two studio techs at uh, the site um,
2: outside of San Francisco. What 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 really stood out from those sessions? I know the band that they were really focused on a different sound that they, they wanted to be I, I a little think heavier, it captured, but it,
0: it captured them live better. I've I've never been a fan of the ten production much. Um, not a big tambourine guy. Um, especially when it's just overdubbed in the studio. And I think Dave pulled it off great right live with a couple things, you know, the Jeremy stuff and all that, but I, you know, just production wise. And I, you know, I, I didn't like the drum sounds necessarily um, on 10, but I mean that wasn't Dave and I, I, I think everything sounded, I think versus I, that I, not to be biased and partial and all that, but that for a, you know, sophomore record, that that's a solid solid effort by on you know, any standard i mean that they everything sounded good the songwriting they just that that was a solid sophomore And most sophomore efforts as you are aware probably you know it's, it's, it's make or break right well you know it's you know and there's just usually a filler song or a you know and it's all the song and if you don't like the song it's original it went a different direction
1: let me right. ask you this about about that record um obviously first with brendan o'brien he is specific in how he does things he's quick he like gets in the moment um he mic strums a certain way which i'm sure you can talk to us about one thing i do want to uh, bring up though specifically is the piccolo snare and uh dave has talked about you know different snares for different venues Yep. and you know bigger venues you go for a deeper snare sound that kind of that can kind of uh, be the backbeat more a bit more powerful but maybe smaller venues it's more of the piccolo so you can actually hear that backbeat in a smaller yep. venue. can you talk about why they chose or why dave chose or why you guys chose a piccolo for the for a, a number of songs in that record
0: uh dave has always liked it really tight high and and punch you in the face. it's hard to describe unless you're a drummer um but in layman's terms you know you want the kick drum to kind of kick you in the chest and you want the snare drum to kind of hit you in the face to where you blink does that make sense that's a good way of putting it (laughs) yeah right so in a nutshell dave Dave likes to blink he like you don't you don't you don't have to sit there and go well, where's the snare drum? I, it's there, but it's mm-hmm. right. It's right. It just hits you in the face. It just, it cuts through all the other frequencies. And, um, he's like that just about with any other, it, the piccolo does it better because of the design, but I mean, all his, I, I don't think it helped this <laughs> carpal tunnel. That's my, but he likes it. I mean, he likes that thing tight. And then, I mean, he, he, and he still hits hard, but he hit hard and that's just, yeah, I mean, you're, it just takes a toll on your body
2: it's pretty well known. I think at this point within the Pearl jam fan base, that you are the mysterious Jimmy who's credited with, with playing drums on Satan's bed, yep. uh, which is the 10th track of mythology. Uh, and you had, you did an interview a while back with two feet thick. And uh, you, you talked about how it was the last day of sessions at bad animals in Seattle. And Dave was having his tonsils taken out. And I guess uh, the guys, uh, they, they, had asked the recording engineer at the time to help them get the drum machine to work and they couldn't. So they called you into the control room. You you took a look at it. You got it going simple beat stone said, Hey, why don't you uh, get behind the kit and play that beat? So you did. And uh, at the time you said that you didn't hear any vocals or bass until the album came out. And actually you didn't think it was going to make the record. I'm curious, how does it feel in retrospect to have your playing immortalized on such an iconic album?
0: Uh, I flattered, you know, I, I, I think there's some overdubs at the end that are pretty much Dave, but I was told by Elias and it's, it's me through most of the, the, the song till the end fade out, but I, and Dave could have gone back and redone. I don't know. I, I just know, I wish I would have had vocals or bass or something else to, uh, uh, go to other than me and stone looking at each other. Um, so is he the scratch
1: or was there a click or how did it work?
0: uh he was a scratch and i i think we had a click in the background uh once i had the because we use that with the you know basically it was the drum machine right which you know and he's you can play that right i said yeah i play that all day long it was (laughs) right so uh that's basically what we did he just jammed on the riff and we i looked at him through the control room and uh like I said, I had I was starting to break down the drum kit because Dave was no longer needed. I was just trying to get ahead of mm. having to load out longer the next day or whenever we we're getting the stuff out of there. So I was there for whatever reason. I it was it was probably nine, ten, eleven at night. You know, I just wanted to get a head start on uh, not having to deal with it the next day. Right?
1: <laughs> was that one of the that was one of the last tracks? Right on that record.
0: I think so well, they had different, yeah, yeah, they had different, I believe so, uh, yeah, I think Seattle was the end of it, because we did some of it in Atlanta and right. some of it in New Orleans,
1: right, so after that record comes out at this point, and we'll obviously we'll come to this, but uh Dave is no longer in the band, and the record comes out, your playing is on the record do you do you feel any kind of complicated feelings about? You're playing, being on the record, considering that Dave's not there and that Dave wasn't on it. Do you feel like maybe you, I don't want to put words in, but did you feel like any kind of betrayal to him in some possible way? I don't know. I'm just, it feels like it could be a complicated
0: scenario. Yeah, I there was a lot of, I, I, yeah, semi-betrayal to I, him, but I did stick with him. I was approached after he was fired by management and they told me the band wanted me to stick around no matter who was going to be the drummer. And I, I, I said I want to, I want to stick it out with Dave, and, and I, I had no idea they'd still be around. And then Matt Cameron would step in. But anyway, <laughs> might have shot myself in the foot a little bit there. But, uh, but you know, but then again, I'd be divorced, living in Seattle, and whatever. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, I, it, everything happens just the way you know. Uh, and yeah. honestly, on that, so I mean. Pearl Jam I, from Eddie climbing everything. I did not. I mean, you can count on one hand bands that have been around five and 10 years and they're happy and their fans are happy and the record company's is happy. I mean, the odds are just so much against you. Yeah. The, uh, the substance abuse, you know, I, I thought for sure Ed would have fallen and killed himself or Mike would have got drunk, wrapped himself around a tree in a car. I, you know, there's a million things could have happened, you know, before we were 30, Um, with all that success and i you know i just uh
2: jimmy eddie actually on stage referenced that moment um he talked back on april 17th in 94 in new york He, he said uh that dave was getting his tonsils out and me and stone we wrote this song the drum tech was actually playing the drums on it anyways this guy named adam who's here tonight we stayed up till like four finishing it that guy named adam uh listed on the vitology liner notes as adam casper assistant engineer so the same engineer actually that would later go on to produce riot act curious do you recall working with adam yeah any any memories of of working him
0: oh yeah he worked at bad animals all the bad animals folks were great Uh, the owners every i I don't know I, i never had of course, you know, I'm walking in with Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam. I, you know, I, yeah. I
3: don't
0: know how they treated other people, but <laughs> I was I was always yeah. that was the other thing I wanted to, not to get off on a tangent. But I I went and visited Jeff Amitt and in, uh, in 2008 in Missoula, Montana. And I I we, we go out to eat and, you know, we walk downtown da, 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 and I got back home and I was telling my brother. Man, Missoula, Montana has got the most friendly people you have ever met. I can't believe. I, da, 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 and he's like, "You're walking around with their most famous citizen." Yeah. <laughs> oh, you oh know, yeah, because it was. I mean, I, everybody was just. I mean, you know, you open a door, and hey, you know, somebody holds the door open for you, and everybody's smiling, and da. da, da and I just didn't even. I did not put that together as far as, you know, he is probably king of Missoula, Montana, and and rightfully so. I think he's building skateboard parks and helps out with the community and does all kinds of stuff. But I, that just, I did not (laughs) think that's why everybody at Earth Fair was so friendly and everybody at the grocery store was friendly and everybody at the restaurants were friendly. And, you know, I, you got to go back.
1: Uh, without Jeff, and just see what happens.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> you, you need a control group.
0: It's a great little town. If you get a chance to go, it's a, it's a college town. It's Montana's college town. Oh, I'd love so to go there.
2: Did that even address as I went off? off yeah, Montana. I was just curious if you had any memories of uh, working near Adam and, and what he was like. And,
1: um, especially uh, considering not- the, the dichotomy of him producing later for Pearl Jam, Brendan O'Brien being a, 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 a big, um, Producer for them as well, obviously differing styles. Did you see that? Did you see a change, a difference to those two guys?
0: Uh, uh, well, not, not, well, see, I, they both like my drum sounds. So that's my job. And once they're happy <laughs> with my job, I get out of the way. And I'm not, you know, they both, you know, hey, that sounds great. Hey, that sounds great. Play a little kid for me. Okay. Bring in the rock star. We're going to make some songs. <laughs> right. And they both did that rather easily. Um, now, Brendan does have some, uh, he does have some unique approaches to some liking. Um, which I had never seen before, which was kind of cool. And then we were at that, that place called the site, um, which is a gorgeous studio. I mean, absolutely. It was awesome. I believe it's where the Eagles did the follow-up to hotel California. Um, and Linda Ronstadt had been there a lot. There was a lot of great heavy seventies drug use stories about that place. <laughs> so, um, but uh, specifically personality-wise, I mean, I didn't. Uh, we had might have had a meal in the control room, um, some Chinese or something, or a piece of pizza. But I, I kind of got, you know, I once I got the sounds, I basically went to a different room, and/or told them, you know, you know, I, I, I we didn't have mobile phones, you know, I'll be back in an hour or two. I, I got out of their hair if that makes mm. sense. Um, once they were ready to record. How do you
1: how do you view the band and and Dave in the studio versus on the road? Because I, I, you know a lot of fans look at the studio and say, okay, that's great, but they made these songs to be played on the road, and that's a different animal. And, and they're a live band through and through. They're still playing live. They're playing in two three yeah. weeks. How did you? What was the difference between those two scenarios to you? Well,
0: you could. I mean, obviously, you, you could. Play it back and pick apart certain things and certain, you know, whether it was a mistake or not. I mean, they are, you know, that they, a lot of stuff was improv, as far as I know. I mean, there were certain ideas, but they would improv, they would jam, right? They'd literally go in there with an idea or two and just start playing with it. And, okay, you know, I'm thinking this for a bridge or that for a bridge or this, you know, they look at each other and change parts. I mean, I mean, you can probably, I have no idea till this day. I bet you that last part of porch is still improved I, mm-hmm. I you know i just and that I, that porch always i mean it could last two bars it could last twenty four i mean it <laughs> it depends on what they felt like doing. you know they would just kind of make parts and go and feed off each other um so studios enough to you know can pick apart certain mistakes and certain you know, it's you know, it's going down to tape, but uh, that's stuff again. That's what I liked about Versus, as I think that was, I think they pulled a lot of that stuff off live, exactly like the record. Hmm. I mean, exactly. Um, but you know, I might be a little biased. Yeah. Well,
2: Jimmy, the, the session you played on Satan's Bed. Uh, once that session completed, Stone was tasked with the unfortunate responsibility of, of letting Dave go. And uh, you know Stone told Spin Magazine back in, in 2001 that it was the nature of how the politics worked in our band. It was up to me to say, hey, we tried. It's not working. Time to move on. On a superficial level, it was a political struggle. For whatever reason, his ability to communicate with Ed and Jeff was very stifled. I certainly didn't think it was all Dave's fault that it was stifled. Jeff later said in an interview that communication was at an all-time low. And Dave himself intimated as well that the communication problem started once Stone stopped acting as the band's mediator. What do you remember about that really turbulent time in the band's history?
0: Um again, you know i I thought it all could have ended earlier, <laughs> and we were lucky that everybody was still alive. Um, but I, I I did I just remember it sucked for Dave, you know I <laughs> you know he was the one that were, his whole world really, you know, changed, you know, and you get to know who your true friends are. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I just, I, I, for lack of a better term, it sucked.
2: <laughs> I can imagine so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's. Uh,
1: Did it feel out of left field, though? I mean, fan, fans don't know what's happening, you know, behind yeah, feels, closed doors. It felt out a left
0: field for me. To an extent, but then in hindsight, you know, as you, you know, and I, I think they just, you know, they just,
1: let me ask you this, Jimmy, did you think when Dave went that they were going to continue past Vitalogy? Did you think that Jack would come in and they, they, they bridge the, you know, the wall? No, I didn't
0: know it was a 50, 50. I could see it all ending. That was just it. I I could see it all ending tomorrow or Mm -hmm. I don't know what that, you know, I don't know what I have no idea what they were going who they were auditioning or what was going to happen i went off and did a tour with l7 Mm. soon after that happened and i and i think by then they were jamming with jack i did i think i did all of yield as a production assistant they still kept me in the loop and Mm. hired me as a production assistant i'd set up uh some of the dressing room gear and you know just any production uh dressing room uh basically dressing room set up and help out where and when i could i mean if you've, if you've ever worked a concert in production there's a million things that you can do from seven in the morning till two in the morning to assist on pulling a show off so i, I
1: watched a documentary on on uh on oasis and at a certain point um no gallagher is taking a different bus and playing than the rest of the band like I don't want to say that maybe the band was doing that with David per se, but like, were there some obvious signs before that that you saw from your, band? I mean, you're flying the wall. You see all of this happening in front of you to a degree. So were there signs along the way where you're like, something's, something's wrong with these guys. Like something's not right.
0: No, I, I didn't think there was any signs. I mean, my, I, you know, I worked for other than COC was, you know, but I knew those guys since high school. So I, you know, but, I mean, every good band has some tensions. I mean, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, but every of them, you know, there's some tension going on. And I think that there was a lot of good songwriting coming, you know. Yeah. And they're not writing songs about, you know, bubble gum and girls and cars or, you know. So, yeah, I, I, I didn't see it coming. Um, something like that was inevitable. But, I'm just, again, I'm just glad everybody's alive. It could have been Dave, you know. Whatever crash in a car or where you know, it, it could have been a million things that Eddie falling to his death. I thought that for sure yeah. was gonna happen. I mean, that guy several times I thought I was gonna watch him fall and die. That that was there was some anxiety from that more than anything, because that I mean he's up. I mean, it's a hundred degrees in Houston, and you know, he's up. I'm sweating watching him, and he's <laughs> up there standing performing, the he's just dripping in sweat. Climbing up with no safety, none. I, I just and walking around on metal truss and speaker cabling, and I just uh, I thought for sure that guy was going to be the death of us all. You know the whole Andrew Wood story. I, I you know yeah. you take another singer out, it's over. I mean I you know I I I would sure Stone and Jeff would have just lived in some shrink's office for the rest of their lives. And I, I don't know you know I'm just saying. I think Jeff and Stone were always... Gonna, I, they had their stuff together. I never saw Jeff and Stone get out of control, drunk or high. Or Stone looks like the most
1: in up. control of anybody that's in a rocket. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I just, yeah. And, I, and I think I, it goes back to the love, but I think they knew what they had. Yeah. And they weren't going to fuck it up with drugs. But I don't know. You'd have to ask them.
2: Well, they definitely didn't. Um, so much so that they were eventually inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yep. And it, it, it's, a, it's a little controversial, I think, in the sense that you had the band inducted with their first drummer, Dave Cruson, and their current drummer, Matt Cameron. And they asked Dave A, you know, his thoughts on it. And he shared his thoughts. on I mean, I, I think he felt it was a slap in the face, but he he did mention at the end... He said that uh, truth be told, if I would have been inducted, I would have requested my tech, Jimmy Shove Jr. and my daughter, Francesca, to say a few words on my behalf. What does it mean to you that Dave would have wanted you to speak on his behalf at this monumental occasion in the band's career?
0: That's right. Dave has given me too much credit. For what Dave take it, Jimmy, did. take it. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, he, he, he posted something on Facebook last week, you know, that, you know, with praise of me and you know, I, I just tuned the drums and he hit them and I just I got lucky on the tunings and you know, you can tune a drum to, you know, to a piano right? every good boy does fine or face all the numbers on a keyboard, sharp or flat. For the most part, you can take those drums towards actual notes. And, uh, I just got lucky. I just, I find it,
1: I find it, you know, we, we, it, we've, like I said, we, we've, we've spoken to Lance Mercer um, who has his own viewpoint of the band from that time. Um, we've spoken with uh, Paul Rackman, who directed the Hunger Strike video. Um, we, you know, there, there are people who have been around the band in, in these different facets and stages, and I always just really enjoy talking to them about what their perspective is of those times. And to kind of get your perspective of this i especially considering how much the community loves dave and loves his drumming and it's just it, it's it, for lack of a better term it's an awkward time period that 1994 uh, period is just uh, it's awkward it's it's strange it's hard for certain fans to get
0: beyond it some people left um so i i, yeah, I think was, you know i, I did, and you know it was still I, at least i started to realize how lucky i was finally i was i was maturing i i i was started to you know started to, actually appreciate the I mean, because you got to think too i mean sound by that by 94 Soundgarden garden and allison chains had made it too right and other than nirvana right i had just worked for three out of the four yeah. right <laughs> what are the odds of that <laughs> we only have i mean there's only a certain amount of crew uh, you know five the original people in fact if you want to go back to really crazy That Allison Chains, the the tour manager from Soundgarden, Allison Chains, that first tour manager has died. Mike Starr is obviously dead. Lane's Mm -hmm. dead. I don't know about the bus driver. Randy's been to rehab. The only two people that have been to rehab, I believe, is me and Sean. (laughs) Right? That's not good odds, man. No. (laughs) You know, either dead or been to, I mean, I'm sure Cantrell's probably spent more rehab than I've spent on. (laughs) <laughs> living but i mean good for him he's sober i'm glad for it and all that you know and i'm not sure i could have done what he did and not have a problem you know yeah. um so you know it's it, you know everybody has their own shoes to fill and walk in and all that fun stuff and i was lucky to be on their coattails <laughs> and like i said i you know i guess i was decent at what i did because otherwise i wouldn't have been hired by all three
2: well, clearly oh. de- decent enough, apparently, for Dave to say he'd like you to accept the honor on his behalf <laughs> if he had been yeah, yeah, invited yeah. to attend, which well, is yeah, pretty okay. pretty special.
0: I am. If, if somebody needs some uh, network administrator work, I am working looking for part time work. I'll plug myself <laughs> right there. There you go. I, just- I like <laughs> it. Find, find me on LinkedIn.
1: Find you me on LinkedIn. So exactly. <laughs> you
0: know, find me on LinkedIn, and you know Pearl Jam fan who's a CEO now. I'll talk Pearl Jam all day. Whatever you want me to do, just pay me. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Jimmy. We, we can't thank you enough for uh, for all the insights and, and the memories you've shared. And you know, it's uh, I, I just never forget listening to Satan's Bed and looking at those liner notes and being like, Jimmy. Yeah, I up. thought
0: that was really nice of, of Ed. I, that had to have been all Ed. You know, when I opened it up and looked at the the drums, Jimmy. You know, and listened to it,
2: I, you know,
0: hey, whatever. Uh, I, 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 you got to admit that's that's pretty nice.
2: Um, Yeah, no, I think it's super cool, man.
0: But again, you know, I it was in the middle of the being fired thing or whatever, and I and no, I didn't. I think I signed over everything for a dollar. I did not. I'm not on publishing, or and I didn't Mm -hmm. write a thing. I don't want to. You know, I don't deserve Dave's cut of that record. Whatever. There's a couple people out there who've asked me and think that just because I was on that record that I got paid. Royalties for that record. And no, I did not. (laughs) Do you wish you did in retrospect? Pardon? Do you wish you did in retrospect? No.
1: Well, listen, you were in the moment and and your contributions are are there forever, both on the record and off the record. Because the other
0: thing
3: too,
1: you know. You know how many people, how many young people saw the band in those years when you know, they are the formative years of the band. They are the most popular years of the band and you were a part of the foundation for what what Dave could do. And I, I just, I want to thank you for that because that's so important to me as a fan.
0: Yeah, I, we had some, we had some really good times we had some, you know, George Webb, the third, and uh, I, I still talk to him once in a blue moon and then Carrie keys. I still talk to her once in a blue moon. They still have, some of the cool crew. I mean, George Webb was George Webb worked for Mother Love Bone. He's younger than me. Uh, George <laughs> Webb's probably 53 or 4, a couple years younger. Uh, George Webb is, I mean, he's made a 30-year career out of this thing. 33 really. Because yeah. he was Love Bone. I mean, he was right out of going to college or whatever. Um, and he's a great, honest as the day is long. He's a he's a great guy. Um, and Carrie's a sweetheart too. Um I of them both dearly. I would loan them money now if they needed it. <laughs> That's their, I mean, they're really, really good folks.
1: Well, Jimmy, uh, th- thank you so much for, for talking to us. Um, yeah. The stories are, are everything.
0: Cool. Cool. Well, let me know. I'll, I'll whip out some others. I, I haven't drank yet. Um. <laughs> yeah. We'll
1: get you after cocktail hour.
0: Uh, yeah. We have, we have to give them the cocktail hour. Have you, you heard the one about uh, Eddie getting left during Lollapalooza? I don't think so. Well, well, do you want to do that now, or do you want to wait and do that oh, next time? Give me now. <laughs> On one of the Puja shows, Eddie rode with the crew to have fun and party with us one night. And uh, we were in between drive. We had a series of bad drivers. And then they have a what's called an overdrive, right? You're not supposed to drive more than 8 to 12 hours.
3: Was this Dirty right Frank?
0: No, this is after. This is post-Dirty <laughs> Frank. This is post-Frank. I didn't anyway anyway it was Lollapalooza, right and there was you know what 10 bands on the thing and all the buses are out summer tour, and eddie came on with us one night and the etiquette which i'm sure eddie probably still doesn't do or whatever did you know if you leave the bus the bus stops at the truck stop at four in the morning to get gas or whatever you're welcome to leave but if the bus driver doesn't see you leave you put your laminates or something on his seat Mm -hmm. right to make him think wait a minute I didn't leave nothing in my seat. Something, somebody's gone. Oh, it's a laminate. Well, is his name. Okay. Eddie's inside. Well, Eddie didn't do that. And evidently he got out at three, four in the morning at a truck stop and we rolled off without him. (laughs) So at about, I don't know, 10 or 11 in the morning, it was daylight. I believe. And, uh, I woke up to a flashlight in my face. Well, some guy going 11, 11, shit, 11, (laughs) because <laughs> i was I always always chose the last bunk on the bottom right over the generator it's the noisiest right i can sleep on top of an engine when it's like a cat pouring anyway that was my method as a roadie get the generator bunk but anyway so i i out. I, I knew that's bad right to a flashlight to my face the guy counting 11 12 how many people we had on our bus and then i, I go up front I, you know what's going on he goes we evidently we left some guy eddie <laughs> what does he do? Is he important? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. was like, oh shit. Cause we, we, was all, we went on between like two and three, four in the afternoon. We were the second band for Lollapalooza. Right. So we had to be there by 11 or 12 to get all the stuff out of the truck and set it up, put it on the moving risers and have it ready to roll into place in 15 minutes after whatever they were called. Hush, slush. Uh, whatever whatever were.
1: was a ministry or they were after you guys.
0: Everybody was at, we were just one opening act. And it was the, right. the girls. Uh, lush 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 open we were just before lush and we only paid like 43 or 44 minutes or something like that that was an awesome that was a, one of the best summers of my life because at the sound garden played too. Soundgarden garden played at like six so i could have breakfast at 10 or lunch whatever knock out 45 minutes pack it up in 30 minutes and then i'm done until six o'clock when Soundgarden goes garden which is dusk. half the time the lights don't matter, but they're paying me anyway. And <laughs> I do lights for Soundgarden, and you they played for probably an hour, maybe an hour and five or something like that. And I'm done for the day. So I, I, I mean, I worked seven hours a day, and then you know, I got my salary from Pearl Jam. But I think Soundgarden threw me fifty bucks a show to do lights or something stupid. I so was wait, already there.
1: Let's go back real quick. Where the hell was Eddie, and how did you get him back?
0: Oh, sorry. He met, he had called the office or the manager from his calling card, right? And calling card. So they had called the bus company and got CBs back to whoever got somebody from the trucking company or somebody got through to somebody on one of the other trucks or buses on Lollapalooza to try to find Ed. And Eddie had found, I guess, Two fans had stopped to get gas at a truck stop that were following the tour, or whatever. Or he found two people and said, "Hey, I'll get you in the show if you take me," or whatever he did. And that was the one show. Then that's the other history making thing. It, uh, that was the show where Temple the Dog played because Eddie was late. Cornell was there with Soundgarden. Oh. Pearl Jam was up there, so we Pearl Jam's time slot was occupied by. Um, Chris Cornell singing Temple the Dog song. That's right. And during that, Eddie didn't have his pass. It was on the bus. <laughs> Eddie had Eddie had to come through the main gate, which you know, the security guys in their defense. Hey, I'm the singer of Pearl Jam. I need to get. Sure you are, pal. <laughs> 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 so, you know. So they get Will called a radio back. Find Eric Johnson. Eric comes running through the crowd, the main gate with security and Eddie. And shoves Eddie up on stage. And in his defense, I mean, he's completely out of breath. It's summertime, it's yeah. 80 or 90, 100 degrees somewhere. And they go into more Temple of the Dog stuff. And then we I, we might have finished with Pearl Jam. Honestly, I don't remember, but it, it was that hectic. But that's the lead in to that story of Temple of the Dog playing Lollapalooze in 1992. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I could
1: listen to these stories all day and we'll probably have to come have you come on one more time. Oh, come on again tell we'll some we'll more stories, we'll
0: man. I'm going to <laughs> walk here.
1: All right, Jimmy, uh thank you, thank you, thank you again and and we'll talk soon. All right, sir. I mean,
2: sir. Thanks, was, Jimmy. Thank Absolute pleasure.
0: Appreciate it. I'm going to have a little dog walk and a drinky drink and call it a night.
2: All right, you brother. got it, my man. Enjoy.
0: Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Wow, Jimmy Shaw Jr. uh uh, paul i had this thing pegged for probably like 35 40 minutes and we could have gone another three hours
2: very easily that's what happens <laughs> when you get in satan's bed
1: oh someone asked how are you the master of segues but we'll save that for a mailbag <laughs> <There you go. laughs> <laughs> um thanks again for jimmy for coming on to jimmy for coming on um yeah i mean not not often do you get to talk to somebody who's in the thick of it in the way that Jimmy was drum tacking for Dave, uh, who, who I know so many of you love so many of you, th- he's your favorite. And we all understand why Dave is great. And to have kind of that, um, other side of the, not other side of the coin, but to get a, a better perspective of his time in the band is awesome. Um, so thank you to Jimmy and anything else, Paul?
2: no i i couldn't have been more pleased just a great opportunity to talk to somebody that uh you know was just there during very very not just formative time in the band's career but uh, a very very high profile time yeah and uh just you know it, it what a treat you know i mean you'll never listen to satan's bed again the same way now you know?
1: Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. all right guys uh that's it for this week we'll be back with you next week Uh, Again, thank you to anybody who has written review, subscribe. That helps everybody that's new find this bad boy, find this show.
2: Keep feeding that algorithm.
1: You got to. Uh, Any of you guys who have recently become patrons, we thank you. If you're interested in joining Patreon, links are in the bio of everything. And uh, we'll see you next week. And until we do, you've been listening to the
2: state of love and trust.